Hello and a warm welcome to episode 10 of Inspiring Psychologists Breaking the Mold of Private Practice. I'm Wendy Kendall, your host, a psychologist and private practice coach. Today we're shedding light on an incredibly significant topic, from stigma to empowerment, changing the narrative on neurodiversity in private practice. We'll be diving deep into the compelling journeys of our three guests, Dr. Emma Offord from Divergent Life, Dr. Katie Adolphus of The Adolphus Practice, and Dr. Lola Perez-Gavino from Mind Made Easy. This episode promises to inspire, challenge and change your perspective as we explore the pivotal role private practices can play in supporting neurodiverse individuals and families, whilst also pushing back against conventional norms and misconceptions. As we discuss neurodiversity and neurodivergence, the spirit of breaking the mould of private practice truly resonates. Our conversation covers the necessity of revolutionising traditional approaches within the psychological professions to support neurodivergence more effectively, with a focus on understanding neurodiversity as a social justice movement. In this inspiring dialogue, we explore how important it is for neurodivergent individuals to find and own their voice. We delve into how a neuro-affirming approach is disrupting traditional ways of assessing and diagnosing neurodivergence, challenging the mental health system, and redefining the medical model of mental health and psychology. If you're seeking to create lasting, positive change through your work, this episode is a must-listen. Join the conversation in our Inspiring Psychology Practices Facebook group. And for more resources and information about our guests today, visit our website at inspiringpsych.com. That's inspiringpsych.com. Now, without further ado, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of the Inspiring Psychologist podcast, where we're breaking the mold of private practice. And in this week's episode, we are going to be speaking with uh, three inspiring practitioners who have um, developed and set up practices that focus on neurodiversity and neurodivergence. And I'm really looking forward to introducing their work to you. So we're going to be speaking with Dr. Katie Adolphus, Dr. Emma Offord, and Dr. Lola Perez-Gavino. So I'm going to invite you all in now. Welcome all of you to this episode where we're talking about changing the narrative on diversity in private practice. So Lovely to see you all. I'm really glad the tech is working and we're keeping our fingers crossed that it's going to carry on working. And um, yeah, it's lovely to see your faces. So uh, I'm going to come to across to you first, um, Katie, if that's all right, for mm-hmm. a bit of an intro and we'll, we'll kind of go around. So Katie, tell us a little bit about you and your practice. 
Okay, hi. So I'm a clinical psychologist and have been for many years. I've been working in the independent sector for um, 15, approximately 15 years. Um, and over the course of my total career, been working a lot with um, the neurodivergent community. And so my practice now provides assessments of neurodivergence and autism, ADHD. Um, and I have a team of um, clinical psychologists, speech and language therapists, an OT, and some coaches as well to provide assessments and support. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you for that. So Emma Offord, Dr. Emma Offord, over to Hi. you. A little bit of an intro. Hi. Sure. Um, so like Katie, I'm a clinical psychologist, um, trained in the NHS and worked in the NHS, mainly in physical health services um, and moved into private practice and had a very, I guess, broad range of referrals um, and over time decided to niche and sort of working with yourself um, developed Divergent Life, which similar to Katie works with neurodivergent individuals, um, doing assessment, screening, coaching, therapy. Um, and we are a neuroaffirming practice. We're not as large as yours, Katie. There's mm -hmm. only really um i'm the clinical psychologist part and then my colleague jolene is a trained counselor and um works in the arts as well so it's quite a holistic practice in terms mm -hmm. of the, the different um we hope neuro affirming therapies that we offer yeah i love that <laughs> thanks emma and over to dr lola perez Gavino. a little bit of an intro from you lola hi um well, yes, I am also a clinical psychologist <laughs> and I used to work for the NHS. There was a bit of an overlap between me working in the NHS and uh, private practice uh, for a few years, but now I, I just work uh, privately and I run uh, uh, my small clinic, which is just me really. <laughs> uh, and um the things I do are mainly therapy uh, and I offer autism assessments as well. Um, and um, the main the main things that I do are trauma work, uh, using EMDR and, uh, and working with anxiety. Um, and my uh, autism assessments, I I decided to to maybe not, I mean, focus, I guess, because I have a lot of experience and, and, and an interest in, in high masking autism, uh, which is what we normally see in, in private practice. I mean, very, very often when people have gone through their, you know, whole lives uh, thinking that they were different and that there was something about them mm. that was different and uh, um, and maybe not everybody or, or not, no one noticed until, until they are adults. And I'm very, very interested mm. in, in that kind of that kind of journey. Um yeah, that's yeah. Uh, me. Yeah, perfect. So I'm really curious about your kind of journey into working in this area in your private practices, because I think like so many of us in private practice, there always seems to be a kind of evolution and a path that we take, right? It's not just... Um, it's not some kind of um, almost like mechanistic decision that is taken. Mm -hmm. There's always um, some kind of personal as well as professional path that gets into the, that gets people into this. 
uh, or into, you know, a particular area in their private practice. Um, so I guess, you know, if I, I'm, I'm going to mix it up a little bit. If I can come across to you, Emma, because <laughs> you mentioned there that you work, for example, in physical health and then you'd worked in different areas and then there was a certain path into developing a neuroaffirming private practice, which was slight it's a slightly different take on this area right so what kind of what made that so important to you that you wanted to focus on that in your private practice yeah it's quite a long story so I'll I'll continue to shorten it but when I look back now although I was working in physical health I was working in the medically unexplained symptom aspects of physical health for quite a long time was also working in chronic conditions but um, those medically unexplained symptoms were often what I now see in many neurodivergent um, clients so I think there was some seeds sown way back then that I didn't quite understand as a neurologist why were there these groups of people that weren't being served by the NHS from a physical health point of view they were being sent to psychology and psychiatry and uh, their physical health symptoms were being seen as purely a kind of psychological process, which is still a biological process because our head isn't detached from our bodies. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I sort of began noticing that. And then I started private practice. So like you, Lola, I was doing both for a while. And initially taking any referral that came in, trying to sort of work out private practice work. And then I noticed some patterns, really, um, which I, I started off discussing with you at some point, didn't I, Wendy, around what what we'd, what you typically, through a medical model, would call OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. That type of presentation just kept showing up and showing up. And so I did lots of research um, and discovered the neurodiversity paradigm shift where these labels and these diagnoses were coming under a very different lens of um, neurobiological understanding. Right. There's trauma and contextual and social understandings, but it was creating a different language for understanding what was happening for people. So I just became really hooked on that because it was moving away from a medical model and looking at people for their differences, but not their disorder and not mm. their um um, you know, illness. It wasn't using that language. It was trying to understand people in a way that I have always understood mental health. So that really fit for me. Mm. Um, and then I guess the more I, the more I looked into it, <laughs> the more I looked into it, and <laughs> yeah. looking into this area of neurodivergence. And then I think it just sort of, like you say, that with that evolution reflecting back on the clients that I've been working with and why years and years and years of mental health therapy and different diagnoses for them hadn't kind of really helped them whereas this um understanding was start was really resonating and helping people so um that was really the inspiration for it or the evolution of it um I mean there's lots of things that happened since then but that I guess that's really the beginnings yeah divergent life right and I remember at the time of our conversations around your particular interest in OCD I remember some of the conversations 
um, that I'd had generally with practitioners where people had been showing up in their practices with challenges like that, where they had felt that that was kind of intractable. They, you know, mm. it felt as though there were, there was a broader swathe of practitioners who were kind of almost like running into a wall in mm. terms of making breakthroughs with people with, that were experiencing those kinds of symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember your absolute kind of fascination for really drilling into what was happening here. And I think it started with looking at safe and sound protocol and then it kind of blossomed from there in a way um, and, and kind of the path evolved at that point. So maybe this is some of the physical side of things that I'm also very passionate about, the neurobiological. Um, there's one theory called the polyvagal theory, which which very much focuses on the central nervous system. And so in my years of researching neurodivergence this just became a really important theme and also like you Lola trauma is at the heart of what I do using a trauma lens so it kind of married the two together um so yes the safe and sound protocol is a music technology that speaks to the nervous system which for some people is a really beautiful therapy because they don't have to talk all the time and 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 work things out they Mm. can have like a safe nervous system experience through you know, co-regulation with myself or with my colleague and um, learn physical skills of regulation, Mm -hmm. which is that bottom-up approach, which, again, I think is a very Mm neuroaffirming and developing concept, which I believe, you know, is really helpful to people, not only Mm. the sort of more traditional cognitive top-down therapies. I think they they work brilliantly for lots of people, but not always and not in the first and so I think this is what a lot of people were struggling with, that they were failing therapy and being told mm-hmm. that the right insight wasn't the right time. But I think it was the wrong therapy <laughs> for a lot of them. So, yeah, that, that's also part of this broader picture is what else can we develop? What, what are neuroaffirming therapies for people? Mm, that yeah. break, this, this one-to-one, you know, or maybe group work. That's kind of, you know, what other things can we do? Yeah. That, and ultimately help psychology and well-being of people yeah yeah and uh, you referred to Lola's work a couple of times I'm going to come across to you if that's okay Lola to also kind of get some sense of that journey for you into developing this private practice and why it was important to you but one of the things I really remember picking up on some of Emma's points about different ways of helping people to feel safe if you like in their nervous system was the amount of creativity you brought into your practice um I remember you know that you developed some really beautiful animations early on and and so on so yeah what was what was your kind of um why was this so important to you to take this this you know slightly different approach in terms of uh, developing uh, your practice yeah um I, they are still very important. I wish I could do more, but uh, it, it's hard work. But I do have yeah. a few ideas in in, in progress. But um, yeah, animations and visual material and uh, images and metaphors yeah. uh, are things that I use a lot in my in my work. Analogies and uh, lots of imagery, and it seems to work. You know, um, 
interesting that people think that autistic people and neurodivergent people have no imagination and uh, and actually I find that you know metaphors analogies stories uh, they work so so well um, so a very sort of passionate about about that about about stories about the narrative that people you know sort of um, the, 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 the narrative that we carry with us uh, throughout our experiences and that for neurodivergent people, uh, even if it's with the best intention, but uh, people keep hearing messages about, you know, you're not good, there's something wrong with you, you're different. Uh, and, and all those things, you know, we kind of absorb and, and then they show up in, in our, sometimes in childhood already, but, but yeah. uh, you know, in my experience, because I work with adults uh, now in adulthood in ways that maybe we, we don't think where or we don't realize where they are coming from. Hmm. Um, and I have found that EMDR, a bit like Emma, I guess, it's kind of, uh, I, I have found, um, I am also a CBT therapist, uh, and I, sometimes I combine both, but I think maybe EMDR, because I came a little bit later in my career to EMDR, there's so many options, there's so many ways of working with EMDR and bringing in different ideas. Um, and I have found that it's provided me with so much, so many resources to help to help people uh um so um yeah uh, um and you, in, were, you were asking me about um, yeah just in yeah. terms of the evolution of your of your practice and you know that journey of I guess so let me let me think about how to articulate my question more clearly what you know how did what or what happened that helped you to decide to start to focus much more on um supporting neurodiversity and supporting people uh, with neurodivergence in their um yeah. in your practice or through your practice it's always been an interest of mine and i guess throughout my career i've been working in places where i've come across neurodivergence a lot uh and for some reason we just seem to work well together so i tend to have uh you know sort of feedback from people you know like I think Emma also mentioned about therapies where you know sort of you don't need to talk a lot so you know sort of I yeah. have uh, skills and feel comfortable working with other tools that are not necessarily sort of asking people you know sort of for their thoughts or for their experiences so there are you know ways that that where people can feel safe and 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 uh, um and, and I, I guess once you start uh, putting a few things out there and showing a little bit who you are as a therapist and as a, as a psychologist, you, you, you know, sort mm. of, because, uh, well, I think now there are more people who are maybe specializing and, and training and becoming a little bit more confident working with neurodivergence. But a while ago, maybe wasn't so much. So I guess neurodivergent people are looking for, you know, sort of for, for people they feel comfortable with and they yeah. offer things that will work for them. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, that's my experience. And you mentioned in your introduction as well, there was this link with, or there was something about um, working with people who were high masking autism. And, you know, what was happening in your practice that made you think, ah, this actually needs some attention. I'm going to put some specific attention on this. I think I'm still, you know, in the process of me, you know, I think it's such a big topic uh, and, yes. and it's really complex in the sense that, you know, sort of the, the, uh, the diagnosis patterns are changing. There is an increment mm -hmm. in how many people are diagnosed. There is a, some kind of controversy, you know, yeah, in terms yeah. of who, you know, should be diagnosed and, and, and not and things like that. But I, 
Um, I think it all started in one of my jobs where I kept coming across lots of young people, teenagers, uh, who were different. You know, they 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 had uh, they came to CAMS, which is, you know, sort of one of the teams that I was working in, um, with depression, with anxiety, like really vague symptoms. No one knew what was going on. And I started mm. reading about, about uh, autism and autism, in the, you know, different aspects of autism. And that's how where I started to learn a lot about high masking. And, mm. and autism just seemed to answer, you know, sort of be, be a possibility in terms of uh, explaining who these people were these these young people and and their what their experience was um and i just became really really interested in in that in that area and i think in my uh, evolution as a someone doing that you know, uh, doing assessments um has been maybe the change from doing assessments in the NHS where the the, the weight is on on what the the person doing the assessment is yeah, so mm-hmm. sees so sort of do I see, see you as someone who is autistic to maybe yeah. sort of shift a little bit to what's your experience you coming here talking to me and being here with me and telling me about your experience so it's sort of obviously it's very important you know sort of the, the the sort of what someone is observing and 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 you know what's going to be used to to see if someone meets the criteria yeah. but also the person's the person's experience because a lot of people are making efforts to get by and yes. uh, and we don't realize that they are <laughs> so i remember that uh, that you know sort of discussions with my colleagues uh where maybe someone said but uh, that was a very normal answer, you know, to the, to, you know, doing an assessment or I don't think they were autistic, but you, you know, maybe I, I sort of thought about, you know, about it a little bit more in depth, but how is that person experiencing it? Are they mm. making an effort? Are they tired? Are they uncomfortable? Yeah. Um, and doing it in my private practice has allowed me to do the assessments in a way that I hope makes people feel safe, confident, comfortable. And be able to show up a little bit more, uh, you know, telling me what their experience is, but maybe, you know, sort of uh, be able to do some stimming uh, or be able to regulate. You know, I've had assessments where people were Mm. sitting on the floor. I've had, you know, sort of assessments where people were holding things in their hands, you know, sort of things that will make people feel comfortable. And and Mm. I think there is also an experience of uh, quite difficult experience of assessments for some people uh, Mm. uh, in terms of feeling that they put you know, sort of in a situation that is really unnatural for them. Um, so Yeah. And just to be really clear for people who don't know, what do you mean by high masking? So high masking, uh, and maybe Katie and Emma, you can add anything or correct <laughs> me if I, you know, if you have any any uh, better ways of explaining it. But it's, um, I mean, it's a, it's a range of behaviors that uh, everybody uses. So we all use them in to to some degree in different situations. Like when you go to a job interview, we're generally masking, yeah. <laughs> trying to show the best self. Uh, but in in autism and uh, in a number of you know sort of people, uh, they they use it more as a strategy to get by and maybe they rely on masking more uh, because maybe they don't know naturally uh, how to behave or they are worried about how they may come across. So masking is not necessarily a bad thing by itself, but in autism very often because people feel that they have to do it or they don't realize, but they keep doing it all the time. um, That's when the problem comes. and, And what I find is that very often people forget who they are. I don't know if you, mm-hmm. Katie and Emma, find that that people say, I, I don't even know who I am anymore because I feel like I'm mas- masking all the time. Yeah, yeah. 
That it's super interesting as well, Lola, in that I know that when I've been doing executive coaching, there have been times that I've spoken to people and I've I've literally heard them say, they've said, you know, in certain situations I need to mask who I am. And I'm not I don't offer neurodiversity coaching. I'm not trained in say I'm not a clinical psychologist. But when I, I guess the more I've worked alongside folks like you, um, the more I've started to hear these things happening. And as you said, then you know, if all of these criteria that were used to, um, let's say, assess someone have come from observing from the outside and then you've got people who are really highly functional at masking what it looks like from the outside then that makes sense that actually we need to think about how does it feel from the inside to be doing that mm-hmm. so yeah thank you for sharing that insight um katie coming over to you so you were kind of nodding and kind of yeah. uh, um it's interesting because uh, yes. i think my origin story if you like has got um it's different but I resonated with both Emma and Lola's stories yes I um I started my career um at Great Ormond Street Hospital and for a little bit of my time there I was involved in a neurodevelopmental assessment clinic um and coincidentally a little bit of my time in unexplained medical symptoms Emma which how interesting interesting to think or maybe the seeds were there in in that part of the work as well um, but I I was really taken. I think one of the reasons I'm a psychologist is because I love people's stories. And I was really taken about how through an assessment, you could begin to tell a different story for mm. a person about them, about their place in the world, about um, and start stripping some of the negative labels that people collect along the way and um replacing them with more affirming, um, explaining ways of understanding themselves and retelling their stories in a validating way. This was a very, very long time ago. So um, the the world of neurodiversity and autism was still very much entrenched in a deficit model. But I think I still saw that ability to tell, tell a story that made an important difference or retell a narrative that made an important difference. Um, via an excursion into working with youngsters who were care experienced, I then went back to my my last role within the NHS was coordinating support for families in a local borough, kind of post-diagnosis, post-discovery of autism for their children. So my world had been coming increasingly, you know, full of neurodivergence and, you know, um, and so as a family move, we we moved away from London and that's when I had to, to start myself up in an independent practice. And I again, I held the doors really wide open thinking, I don't know, I don't know if there's a market here. I don't know what, what you know, how this is going to go. So all comers and actually the people who walked through the door, so many of them were neurodivergent and in ways that either they were masking or in ways that would never have got over that threshold in the NHS Mm -hmm. so it might be that their parents couldn't kind of describe and explain the challenges in a way that their GP would go okay I know what's needed here Um, but as soon as I could open the door and say well just come 
and we'll work out from there because there isn't a barrier there isn't a, a referral threshold and so yes. they came and what we discovered ultimately was that they were neurodivergent and that was the helpful way of understanding their story yes um, and so um, more and more of my clients were neurodivergent and it became more and more sensible and more and more exciting for me to go actually I don't need to know everything about everything what I what I really need to do is understand how to be the best therapist the best psychologist the best assess you know person that does these um, discovery assessments that I can be for the neurodivergent community and alongside that there's neurodivergence in my family so um, it it was a coming together of my world really yes yeah Um, that, that brought me to this point where my practice is specifically for neurodivergent people yeah you know there's something that all of you have kind of spoken to and spoken for there that I think is profoundly important for us to kind of get the message out there which is when there is an area in psychology that is not well understood not coherent um then gatekeeping Mm -hmm. access to professionals through people being able to articulate in a certain way what their needs are is like setting up people for Mm -hmm. failure right So when we have a situation, I didn't watch this Panorama documentary last week. Um, I've heard people describe what was going on. I've read some uh, newspaper articles about it. But this whole thing about, oh, is there an, you know, an unnecessary explosion in the diagnosis of people who aren't really, um, you know, then... (sighs) then that kind of what you're saying kind of really speaks to me there because you're saying, if I'm understanding this correctly, um, when we're, we have inappropriate filters for what this mm-hmm. should look like mm-hmm. and actually what we're doing is being, which is actually more of a scientific way of doing things, which is um, opening up the conversation about and getting curious about it, first of all, rather than having these prefit pigeonholes that people need to match before they can receive any support mm. am i am i way off track here am i understanding this what what's your thoughts on that <laughs> um so one of my thoughts and i start to get kind of like a fight flight response when i think about um some of these discussions because yeah i haven't watched the panorama no, um, I thought it might sort of be a bit triggering to watch it actually um but I think what can get forgotten in all of this that it's not only incremental change working Mm. a different way one-to-one with people and families it's a movement it's a social Mm. movement and you know it's grassroots it's from um service users or neurodivergent self-identified so you know, um, neurodivergent individuals it's not just coming from private services or mm-hmm. other kind of experts it's coming right. from who are doing their own research who are confronted with a system that's letting them down that's not everybody but many people and they're creating this movement and so 
I see a lot of the work that I do as part of that movement and part of using the skills I have. And I guess the voice that I have, the platform that you can have as a clinical psychologist mm-hmm. to advocate on behalf of those individuals and families. Um, you know, I see a lot of families in crisis. They can't get access. If they are being given access, they're being asked to write a letter justifying their assessment mm. or they've got a waiting list of two to five years and they, mm. you know, their child isn't able to access school, getting any education. Right. Maybe that's the part that needs to also be investigated and looked at is... Quite. ...being or being gatekeeping. The, the gatekeepers are, you know, saying, I'm sorry, you're, you're too social, you're making too much eye contact for a neurodivergent person and all those stereotypes. Um, which are anecdotal. I've not witnessed that myself, but this is what my clients come to me and tell me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think it's, I think it's, it, it's, it's beyond, it's that transformational change that we're part of mm-hmm. when you're a neurodivergent, neuroaffirming clinician. Mm-hmm. So, and if you guys would agree with that. I think I'm really interested by that because I think that um, there was almost, there's been a recent critical mass that's allowed people kind of, I sense a kind of permission giving to say as a clinician, actually, yes, there are people around me who agree with it, with me. I'm not a lone person saying a thing. Um, yeah. And as you say, Emma, there's a huge um, neurodivergent community finding their voice which is a glorious thing um and it feels like that that impetus has really really grown so I wonder whether there have been lots of people I know for myself a lot of the stuff that is being said now in a neuroaffirmative way I was thinking but didn't feel like I had permission to push that boundary professionally um for for quite a while and it's and it's really freeing to now say oh actually there's a body of people around us that are on the same page mm-hmm. yeah and that makes me feel a degree of hope even though the systems and structures that we work in are are as they are yeah mm-hmm. yeah and Lou, I notice you kind of nodding your way through that as yeah. well <laughs> I mean kind I of- I agree with everything that that has been uh said and uh and I'm very aware of, you know, sort of some of the sort of ideas and positions uh, that are out there in, in terms of, you know, sort of um, these, uh, you know, people who, who have managed to, to get through life without a diagnosis and, and, mm-hmm. and you know, is, are, are they really, really autistic? And, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know if it is fortunately or unfortunately, but uh, there are, you know, people wouldn't think of, you know, am I ADHD? Am I autistic? Mm-hmm for no reason so that that that's one of the questions for me so people feel different people struggle and then they mm-hmm. ask the question like what what why <laughs> mm-hmm. and then they they look into neurodivergence and it could be anything because it could be dyslexia it could be you know it could be anything that makes you different yeah. from from the majority and it it is an explanation people feel comfortable people feel normal so for me in that sense uh I think if, if you know, the community is, is, is brilliant, you know, it's brilliant that there is a community out there and that people belong. Um, and at the moment, you know, the way things are set up, it, it, it just seems like, uh, you know, there is a diagnosis, you know, uh, uh, but maybe, I don't know where things are going to go, you know, in what direction mm-hmm. are we going to start seeing, uh, you know, sort of uh, different 
different, you know, neurodiversity in a different way. And hopefully there will be a time when people don't even need to, like at, at the moment, I feel like people uh, need a diagnosis to get support. Mm-hmm. I think that's what Emma mm-hmm. was saying, isn't it? So hopefully we get to the point where people say, well, I cannot work in a room full of people making noise and you don't need to say I am autistic to yeah. be able to get a space that is appropriate yeah. or, you know, the light bothers me. Uh, now you have to go with the, you know, sort of say, look, <laughs> this is why I need, well, actually, you know, everybody mm-hmm. needs a space that works for them or, a, you know, sort of a, an ADHD person to, to, to be able to get up and move around mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever it is that, 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 that they need without having to sort of feel like you, you need this label to, to get mm-hmm. the support. But it's complex, isn't it? Like so many layers <laughs> that, um, It is. And it kind of when you talk about responding to people's needs like that, I mean, goodness me, we're not talking about having to, you know, dismantle the whole world. Do you know what I mean? It seems like what is being asked for, actually, a lot of the time is in itself, not some kind of huge uh, um, adjustment somehow huge departure from what other people have put up with (laughs) Um, and yet it gets layered with so much politics because a person is asking for something to help them with something (laughs) like I think it's that confusion isn't it between um, asking for accommodations so that the world works for you and and people's confusions about equality because you're supposed to treat everybody the same but actually equality and equal it's equality of opportunity and so that might be providing different things for different people so that their opportunities are equal and um, I think that that's that people get tripped up about that because there's an assumption that equality means providing the same thing and it doesn't it means that the outcome has to be the same the outcome in terms of opportunity and availability for for growth and and to reach your potential is equal yeah yeah so removing barriers to people growing yeah you know as, as necessary really, isn't it? right <laughs> Exactly. Providing people what they need to thrive because again there is this idea that oh, you know, you are neurodivergent, you you cannot have a job, you cannot keep a job, you cannot have a family, you cannot have a relationship. Yes, you can with Uh the right support, with the right understanding in the right environment. And and um I think that's Mm -hmm. one of the things I don't know if, if you, Katie and Emma, find that, but you know, a lot of people who come to see me who don't believe that they they are able to or or that uh have those beliefs around themselves uh in Mm. terms of how far they can get Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's been the narrative throughout many people's lives hasn't it of um trying you know the square peg round hole experience of you need to change Mm -hmm. that this is standard this is the norm this is the school uniform you must put on. This yeah. is the meal you must eat that I've served you. Um, you know, and fighting against your sensory preferences, um, your, your kind of uh, ways of processing information, like what you were saying, Lola, even, you know, in therapy, we need to change the way that we help people process mm-hmm. information. We can't just do it in a intense eye contact talking way all of the time. Yeah. yeah. Even the, 
kind of 50 minutes is a bit artificial why does it have to be 50 to 60 minutes why can't it be something else mm-hmm. um but yeah just shifting um that understanding that it's not an I won't it's I need mm-hmm. so in order to be able to listen learn engage feel safe um smile be happy mm-hmm. and same I love what you said there Katie about um inequality I think that's just so spot on something also I mean you know this is episode 10 now of this first series and what I've realized from having these conversations is there's always something that people say that that really kind of that is like my paradigm shift in my head (laughs) and you know there's a couple of things that I think you've raised here one which is about how important it is for all of us, for all of us, to feel as though we are the ones telling our stories. Mm-hmm. Like it's like our story doesn't have to be, and it can be traumatizing when it is um, defined by and shared by other people, and we're not involved in that somehow. We're not asked about it Mm -hmm. we don't relate to it you know there's something really um important there I think which is some message around the ownership of our stories um yeah and so when it comes to you in your practices um you know we talk about breaking out of the mold that's what this kind of podcast is around because I think that's for me, it's something that's really fundamental to the power of private practice, which it, which is that it gives us the capability. I feel like it gives us that power in our hands to start mm-hmm. shifting some of these, these systems where we feel like something needs to be done differently. But obviously, that can feel exposing. Mm-hmm. So I just wondered about whether that's been part of your experience. I think a couple of you have alluded to that, that, you know, feeling as though you're not the only one now feels better than it used to feel. So have you had, what have been your experiences about starting to break some of these molds? I think that's a really interesting question, Wendy. When, um, when we think about doing assessments, there's a real um, tension, Mm. I think, because to ensure that they um, are not challenged and that they can the outcome can provide access to services or supports that people are eligible for there's a real tension that we we use the international diagnostic manuals that exist which are both currently really quite deficit focused in their in their Still. language and their understanding of yeah. neurodivergence um, whilst wanting to provide an experience for the client that is affirmative, validating, and that they can come away with a sense of being understood and a a sense of pride in in their identity um, as a neurodivergent person. And I think that tension is something that within our practice, we routinely touch upon and reconsider and think about in terms of um, the diagnostic, you know, the tools that we use as part of our assessment, the way we the language that we use in reports, I think that's a tension that's that's really alive amongst the community yes. of autism and ADHD assessors at the moment. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So on the one hand, having to keep one foot in the, you know, the current system, let's say, mm-hmm. and with the other foot kind of um, starting to break out of the mold a little bit mm-hmm. and there always being a tension in, mm-hmm. or there being a tension in that currently. Mm-hmm. You know, most families that come to me, one of their questions is, are your assessments, you know, um, do, do local services and schools accept your assessments? Yeah. So it's pivotal. Yeah. That, that we find that that we tread that tightrope and do it well right yeah one way that um i try to bridge that gap because mm-hmm. i see that's i mean i'll always have the conversation that similar mm-hmm. conversation with the parents and and yeah. a young person you know this is going to be medicalized language yeah. for parts of your report yeah. reason for that and you know we and we'll have to put you know, autistic spectrum disorder, you have to put that diagnostic in there. Um, And that's uncomfortable, really uncomfortable. But I think you can couch that with the trusted ship and you can have that conversation. Um, But I co-construct my Mm -hmm. with every person I work with. So they get a draft. Mm -hmm. And if there is something they feel they really need to say, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's not only going to be this medicalised um, mm-hmm. diagnostic report is also going to have their voice in there. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we'll also be including other trauma experiences that not being heard. And so mm-hmm. the perspective is really useful there as well because this idea of school trauma is not really understood that that a lot of indiv- neurodivergent individuals are experiencing trauma, not only in the school, in the workplace and in other areas. So that that's not really part of a traditional autistic yeah. HD assessment. So I think, yeah, you're, you're, you're trying to make it as affirming as possible mm-hmm. around this medical model, but it's still really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and just to kind of bring you in, Lola, there, because I noticed as well that you're kind of affirming that some of those experiences as well it's something that you also that tension uh, that you also have yeah, seen I was going to say that, that with. Yeah, yeah yes uh, I was going to say that that's probably the area where it feels that uh, um, it, it, re- it really felt like breaking the mold I think in terms of right. assessments because they are so different from the sort of the more traditional way that I was used to doing them when I worked in teams um, and that you know sort of that that balance you know sort of really being careful checking that you're doing everything that should be done that no one can challenge well they can challenge them but you know sort of giving all the information that that uh, it, it feels a little bit like uh, uh justifying yourself you know sort of making sure mm. that you put all the information that that someone reading the report may say uh, did they ask about this or does this, you know, is this sort of nice compliant, nice guidelines compliant? Is it, so it's, it's, there's a lot of work to, to make it robust enough to, you know, sort of feel like it shouldn't be challenged. Um, yeah. and, but at the same time, the, uh, the, giving the person the experience that they, they wanted. And I think that that is one of the things that I find that some of the people who have come for assess, you know, for, to have an assessment with me, that it was like a, 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 a 
a, a process, you know, the, not therapy, but it was something, it wasn't just the label, you know, it was like, I want someone who understands and I want, I yeah. want to feel validated. Um, yeah. So I completely agree with what, what Katie said and, uh, and I am as well. Yeah. But it feels like uh, r- really, you know, sort of an exercise where you have to sort of r- really make sure that you tick all the boxes. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and at the same time, really holding um, this kind of um, responsibility and privilege as well, I guess, of being a person there to start that is um, that is affirming someone, that is validating them, that is helping them to take back the power over their own story. As you said, Emma, about co-creating reports with them and uh, and so on. So, yeah. I, I love that because it's such a description of almost like the the grassroots day-to-day, what it looks like to challenge and push back on a system mm. within the mental within the mental health sector, right? Where people have been traumatized by the system. And on the one hand, holding um that experience with empathy so that it's not a re-traumatizing experience again Mm. and meeting the requirements of the system whilst pushing back on it I mean that's such a yeah you know an incredible description of the the kind of challenges of of the work that you're doing in your private practices because part of their reason for being is to challenge the system Mm. as opposed to just in inverted commas being there to support people who have been unseen by or damaged by the system yeah I definitely feel on on a completely different level of course what some of those clients feel because you know you you are pushing back against the system you are doing things differently you are challenging what's being said changing narratives um even you know even a draft report could be seen as, you know, not the right way to do it. You should just be writing the report from your expert opinion and delivering it. Um, but, you know, um, you know, it, it can feel very anxiety provoking. You can feel like you could be challenged for doing this mm-hmm. work at the same yeah. time, putting your heart and soul yeah. into believing in, in it and wanting to, someone's got to do the advocacy, haven't they? Um, so, yeah, it's something that I think yeah. we should, as clinicians in, in, in these roles um, and, and, and deeply empathise with that, the level of disempowerment that other clients mm-hmm. feel. Yeah. Um, so how, how they feel on a daily basis, you know, facing and challenging the system is, mm-hmm. you know, huge, actually. It's, it's, and it, they can feel very hopeless. So there mm-hmm. has to be other people at different levels within the system mm-hmm know the system to to be able to do this but it's it's hard really yeah and you all you all know me so you'll know that one of the things I say about people in private practice is um I think um I I even have a card that I send out to people as they uh, come onto the program which is um uh, psychologists in private practice wear their brave pants every day and (laughs) So this whole thing of, you know, what helps you to wear your brave pants every day on this, um, you know, is it is it having 
other practitioners in the practice with you? Is it having these kinds of conversations? What is it that helps you wear those brave pants every day? That's such a good question, but I would like to just say, I don't know that we, I do do that, manage to do that every day. So I just like to put my hand up and say, I sometimes am able to do that and at other times feel more vulnerable. Um, I think what helps me is being um, really tuned into autistic voices, Mm. because if I, if I hear that um, what I'm doing um is is kind of rooted in what autistic voices are saying then that makes me feel good or it gives me a course correction if not right yeah i'd agree with that i think that that's that's where the grounding comes from Mm -hmm. when you feel sort of unsure of yourself or thinking you know what, what are my colleagues maybe going to think about me or people that I used to work with in the NHS? Um, and then you see things like, you know, the controversy that's that's about, you know, it, it, it's uncomfortable. But then again, when, it, when you listen to the community, it's all there. And mm-hmm. so um, really that's what we're doing is we're listening, we're doing our job. Right. <laughs> you know, experience and the narratives of the people we serve and, and want to work with and want to to support so uh, yeah that gets me very quickly out of a bit of a head spin of doubt sometimes not my own doubt you know it's society can come come back on you yeah 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 I agree with what you guys said <laughs> um I think uh I think that's one of the reasons why private practice really works for me because uh i i have kind of shaped the work i do and what i offer to what's aligned with my values and what i want to be about as a as a professional and as a psychologist uh so i mean obviously you know sort of doing your research and you know sort of hearing listening to the community to the autistic community in your divergent community in general uh feedback from clients it's just such a luxury to to be able to tailor uh and adapt what you do to what you think and what people tell you that is needed um so yeah. uh but yeah i i i think you know sort of going back to that that tension isn't it earlier where you you're trying to do your best but then also you 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 have to sort of bear in mind what's what what um what the system or what mm-hmm. certain systems are are about or mm-hmm. value um but I, it's it's it, i i don't know if you if katie and emma has not have noticed that but i've also noticed like in the last couple of years there's been such an expansion in terms of you know hearing about neurodiversity mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. assessments have changed so much mm-hmm. there's so much more emphasis on the person's experience and you know this mm-hmm. neuroaffirming way of mm-hmm. of uh working you know with with the autistic community that has been really amazing to be part of it and actually do it you know in the way that you believe that is the right way to do it and the helpful way to do it yeah awesome so I guess coming to kind of um, thinking about the hopes for the future um, if you're going to think about you know how you would what what you're hoping will happen in the coming you know few years with respect to um 
the changes you'd like to see in the system and also just in terms of how you see your own practices developing um yeah how what are your hopes for the future around that and perhaps come to Lola if that's okay first yeah very good questions Wendy (laughs) (laughs) all of them make you think a lot um I'm really curious at the moment. There's so much happening at the moment in terms of, uh, you know, sort of social media voices, Mm. you know, coming, you know, coming up and out. And uh, I'm really, really curious in terms of what's going to happen, uh, how how we are going to shape uh, the future of neurodiversity and services for neurodivergent people. Um, and as I said, in a way, you know, I sort of, it, it's really tricky. And I think for me, there is a this balance between sort of validating, like this is your, you know, this, this is your group, you know, uh, and uh, this is who you are. But then at the same time, taking each person by themselves uh, yeah. and not necessarily saying, oh, this person is autistic, so this applies to them or that applies to them or they, they won't benefit from this kind of therapy or they will benefit from this kind of therapy so actually maybe yes it's a framework and it's useful to think about neuro neurodivergence but then at the same time each person being unique and thinking about what does mm-hmm. this person need and and uh yeah so <laughs> that's part of the process that i am at at the moment <laughs> yeah yeah i love that and i think it that just sounds like such a profoundly important Um, capability for us to develop within our systems as well that we don't just have this kind of cookie cutter okay well you've got that label now so this is the suite of things that you get or that you don't get like like if our systems could could have a an organizing framework and then an individual focus like everyone's going to benefit from that right absolutely yeah emma how about you for hopes for the future? They're not dissimilar. I'm, I'm very curious. I mean, I, I kind of almost sometimes imagine the possibility of a, a, a kind of redefining of the medical model um, and and quite a different understanding of this idea of mental health and psychology and psychiatry. I think there's so much more to still learn and incorporate. Um, mm. So for me... That would be my ultimate goal. My ultimate outcome would be that could be, you know, just have another look at that. Um, (laughs) Keep chipping away at that scientific paradigm. (laughs) Probably more research, you know, using neurodivergent or self-identified neurodivergent individuals as part of that research because, you know, that that has been gatekeep. um, There's been gatekeepers there. um, Mm -hmm. And... And more clinicians as neurodiversity and I think there are many who perhaps don't feel able to say they are as well. Um, so you know, I yeah, more inclusivity in 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 those kind of terms. Um, yeah, that's and I think it's the system change really for me. Um, schools as well to have schools yeah. that are more inclusive and less compliance control led, which I know is very relationally traumatizing for many neurodivergent individuals so you know it's to stop the trauma <laughs> really and to and to yeah to look at this with curiosity not as in like you said earlier Wendy like people are doing this with good intention 
mm-hmm. as a survival response <laughs> for for themselves and for the families not you know looking at their neurodivergence not because they're out to get anything mm. i don't know they portrayed as so um yeah yeah Awesome. Thank you. And Katie, what are your hopes for the future? Well, are we allowed to change the world in response to this question? (laughs) 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 Because I think my hopes for the future are that the systems and structures around us um, don't take people as individuals and and respond accordingly. Mm. And when that happens, we can dismantle um, the idea that neurodivergence is part of a mental health thing. And, you know, it can come out of the DSM, with the diagnostic manuals. It can come out of the ICD, yeah. other, uh, other diagnostic manuals. And I say it that way around because there's no point in taking it out if actually that's going to mean that people fall between the, the gaps. Right. And, you know, and are further harmed. Yeah. Uh, but but both of those changes need to, to be happening, I I think, um, and um, wouldn't it be amazing if if we weren't needed, if, if we didn't have to have conversations about neurodivergence and trauma, you know? Yeah. So my, my long-term hope is that I can retire unneeded. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find a new job for you, Katie. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well... Yeah, I, I mean, it's been such an amazing conversation to uh, to speak with all of you today because it really brings home how important it is. I think for uh, you know, for in terms of being able to dismantle systems that are harming people, that actually within our private practices, we all. Uh, there is a role for us to play within private practice to do that, that it's mm-hmm. not. And, and the reason why I think that is really important and why I make that link to, you know, practices that are actually very purpose driven is because I know even within our own community of psychologists, there can be a sense that, oh, people go into private practice for kind of selfish reasons. And I see exactly the opposite with everybody that I work with. You know, people go Mm -hmm. into private practice very often because they fundamentally cannot bear to see something happening that is happening every day. And they want to make a difference with that. And by the way, we do need to make practices that that also support and nurture practitioners so that, you know, we, we can live, <laughs> that we can live also, you know, happy and effective lives and not be traumatized by our practices as well. Um, but yeah, I, I've just, I've learned so much um, from this conversation. I've also learned so much over the the period of time that I've known you guys to um, just in terms of thinking about the world with a, or seeing the world with a different lens as well. And um, yeah, I'm profoundly grateful to to all of you for this conversation, for the for the various conversations that we've had over the over the years. Mm-hmm. So thanks very much. Thanks everyone for listening. Um, a really a big grateful thank you to Katie Adolphus, Emma Offord, and Lola Perez Gavino today. Where can we find you all, Katie? Where can we find you on social media or internet? Um, 
social media, I'm, I'm very much at the beginning. So we do have a Facebook page, The Adolphus Practice. We've oh, got yes. an Instagram account that's the dot Adolphus Practice. Um, but and they are about to be meaningful as Ooh. pages and accounts yeah, to be. follow, but they are not there yet. We'll get lots of followers for you. And yes. what's your website address? We'll put it in the yes. show notes. But Thank you. Yeah. It's theadolphuspractice.co.uk. Perfect. Emma, where can we find you? Um, at the moment, it's um, divergentlife.co.uk, um, our website, and Instagram is divergentlives. Um, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I love your Instagram account. <laughs> and Lola. Um, so my uh, my therapy website is mindmadeeasy.com and yep. my uh, website for autism assessment is highmaskingautismassessment.com. So not very original, but very straight to the point. Absolutely. <laughs> and I Get am at the URL. beginning. Yeah, I'm at the beginning yeah. of uh, starting, you know, sort of to be a bit more present in social media. Uh, yes. where I've created um, uh, an account which is called Autistically. Uh, right. But I only have one post so far, but lots of ideas <laughs> that just need to be. <laughs> and I've also seen you on LinkedIn as well. So I know uh, that yes. we can connect with you on LinkedIn too. As well. Yes, yes. Perfect. Thanks so much, everyone. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. We will see you in next week's episode. Until then, take care and bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. I'd love to hear what you think about the Inspiring Psychologist podcast. So please take a moment to leave a review and give us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. It makes a massive difference in helping us to reach new audiences. If, like me, you're feeling inspired and moved by the private practice stories in our podcasts, please spread the word across your own networks. And why not encourage your colleagues and friends to listen to the podcast too? To make sure you don't miss out on future episodes, please be sure to subscribe to the Inspiring Psychologist podcast. You can find out more about all my guests from Series 1 at our website, inspiringpsych.com. That's inspiringpsych.com.